This is Global Mining News. Welcome to the Northern Miner Podcast. My name is Adrian Bocabelli. And there is no bull market like a gold bull market, as the saying goes. And there's a lot of excitement out there. Gold is at an all-time high. And silver is rocket launched. And, you know, it's easy. I was thinking to myself... It's easy to forget how long people have been waiting for this now that it's here. People have been waiting for this for 10 years. And I suppose I am talking about the gold bugs in particular, who kind of never gave up after 2011, after that high and uh, brutal bear market. It was a brutal bear market to the low in 2015, and the stocks just ground lower and lower and lower. And I remember the PDAX. I remember the remember the charts. <laughs> I yeah, like I mean, sentiment couldn't have gotten lower. So as they say, there is no bull market like a gold bull market, and the animal spirits are lighting up, and you're seeing it across CNBC and Bloomberg. I mean, the stock of the day yesterday was GDX on Bloomberg there. So you can see how central gold is to the conversation right now. And kind of the opposite side of that conversation is really the decline in the U.S. dollar. And we have a headline on that right now. And so things are getting interesting out there. Silver in particular has rocket launched. What's kind of crazy is... The silver stocks had already, they were early. In a sense, they had preceded the metals somewhat. And now they're already so extended, but now silver is really taking off. Again, there seems to be a sense of acceleration. So they continue to fly higher. I look at stuff like Fortuna. Silver mines is sort of my go-to indicator of how the silver stocks are doing because it's sort of got that, it's that mid-tier favorite that a lot of people look at. And let's just take a quick look. Let's look at the silver stocks, shall we? Let's look at the gold stocks too. Let's see what's going on. And so SLV, the silver, iShares Silver Trust, the ETF, was up 7.64% yesterday. And... We look at the silver stocks. Pan American was up 5%. Fortuna was up 10%. And Fortuna, like, it was at, in March, it was at $2.57. It actually says it looks like it hit an intraday low of $2.05. It's trading at $9.64. So if you were a silver bull and you liked what you saw at Fortuna and you caught it in March, you're up five times. Actually, no, you're up four and a half times. I mean, that's pretty serious. And what's crazy about it is there does seem to be a sense of acceleration to this. Let's see. Uh, Pan American Silver, let's take a look. It's trading at $51.80 at the low. It was at $17.43. And it looks like it hit an intraday low of $14.22. It's at $51 now. So the performance is pretty impressive. If we look at Newmont, it's at $69. So it's just sort of kind of gradually climbed the last few weeks in July. Like it had a bit of a dip 
at the beginning of July, and it was down at fifty nine fifty four, and it's been it basically gradually climbed up ten dollars in the last three weeks. So pretty dramatic thing. So Newmont's at sixty nine dollars and four cents, up three point four percent. And let's just take a look at Ignico and Barrick. Ignico is at ninety nine dollars, up two point seven five percent. That stock is performing quite nicely at the low. It was at, on March 17th, it was at $51.89. And it looks like from here, the 52-week low intraday was $43.25. Incredible. So that is more than doubled. It, again, it's at $99.05. And finally, let's take a look at Barrick. And Barrick was up 5% yesterday. Now, this is on the American market, G-O-L-D. They took over Rand Gold's stock ticker name. Now, here, on, uh, they were down at $15, so they basically have doubled. On March 12th, they're at $15.67. Looked like they hit uh, intraday low at some point of $12.65. So, you've still done well with Barrick, but it's... Sort of like Agnico, like you did really well, but it's not like what you're seeing with these, you know, Fortuna. Uh, one of those just, it produces, but it's still mid-tier, has that kind of low dollar amount. I'm not invested in any of these stocks, by the way. So that's what's going on over there. And it, what's crazy about it is it has the attention of the market. And let's not forget what Jeffrey Christian said that a lot of these fund managers have very little exposure to gold, if any at all. So they don't need to do too much to move the needle here. And so this thing could just be getting started. That's the crazy thing about this. So watch this space is all I have to say. We'll take a look at metal markets and you're going to see, yeah, it's getting very, very interesting. Joining us on the program today is... Gord Stothart, president and CEO of I Am Gold, and it's the second part of our interview, which I did with Gord at the Canadian Mining Symposium. It's pretty interesting. He talks about uh, his mines in Canada. Just check my notes here. He talks, talks about the uh, difference between working in Canada and the rest of the world. He talks about his Africa projects, and I asked him about tailings dams and... Uh, he had a lot to say about that and also his work with First Nations and local communities. And also they're building a solar plant by their Essequine mine. And I believe that's in Burkina Faso. And I thought the most hilarious little factoid that I got out of that interview was that I Am Gold owns the copyright to zero harm, to the term zero harm. And as he says in the interview... We're happy to share it. We think it's a great thing. I mean, what are you going to do? Are you going to start attack, you know, taking people to court for zero harm? So that's pretty hilarious that they copyrighted that. And sounds like they were early on that. Who knows? Maybe they even generated the term and popularized it. That, I would need a, another interview to get Gord's take on that. So anyways, that is all coming up. We have a whole lot of really interesting news stories coming up here, too, and some really you know, head-turning metal prices. So action-packed summer episode here coming up. If you want to find us online, you can find us at northernminer.com. 
Find us on Twitter, at Northern Miner. You can find us on Instagram, at The Northern Miner. Find us on Facebook, LinkedIn, and YouTube, where we also host these podcasts. And you can also find us on Spotify, Stitcher, and wherever podcasts are available. And with that, let's turn to the news. And turning to the website, a very interesting story from the Canadian Mining Journal. And they are looking at a report released by Refinitiv. I see more and more on my YouTube. A really interesting analysis from those guys. They're kind of everywhere these days, Refinitive. Anyway, very interesting story. ETFs drive gold price in Q2. Nothing special there. But here, as physical demand falls. So isn't that interesting? In Q2, physical demand for gold actually fell. And so you see that... ETFs and investment demand, in a sense, this financial part of the market, we might say, is really what's pushing this thing higher. So again, we think of Jeffrey Christian and these asset managers who are underexposed to gold. Let's take a look at the story. As the gold price breaks through $1,900 per ounce, Refinitiv has released its review of the gold sector in the second quarter, providing insight where the demand is coming from and where it's falling. The review shows that as uncertainty around the COVID-19 pandemic has boosted investor demand for gold in some regions, the rising price has made the yellow metal more expensive in local currencies, leading to decreased demand in some regions and a drop in consumption. At the same time, the pandemic has curtailed gold supply, with mines around the world forced to delay operations or reduce production. So a couple of things going on here. In Q2, gold got really expensive, so physical demand fell. However, production also fell. Gold touched an eight-year high of $1,772 per ounce at the end of June, averaging $1,711 per ounce in the quarter, up 31% from the same period last year. Not bad. Supporting that price growth was ETF demand, which grew by 361% year over year, or 436 tons to a new high of over 3,000 tons. The numbers are on track to set a new full-year record. So people talk about the paper market. You know, you see the paper market is really taking off. While investment demand surged during this quarter, physical demand fell 36% to 677 tons, a low not seen since early 2009. I'm going to repeat that. Physical demand fell 36%, a low not seen since early 2009. Demand for gold in industrial applications fell by 16%, while official sector purchases declined by 42%, I assume that's central banks, official sector purchases, to 122 tons as Russia and China bowed out as buyers. Jewelry demand cratered by 53% in the second quarter to 240 tons, the lowest quarterly level recorded over the past 20 years. Retail investment in bars and coins dropped by 2%, with a 58% drop in demand from Asia, notably India, mostly offset by huge surges in demand in Europe, notably Germany, and a 25% year-on-year increase in demand in North America. And it continues, production dropped about 12% to 762 tons for the quarter. 
and that mines in Latin America and Africa were the most heavily impacted by the lockdowns. And we have a quote from Cameron Alexander, Refinitiv's Director of Precious Metals Research, and it's from a news release. We believe that gold will continue its uptrend, driven by growing concerns over the global economic recession, fears of a second wave of COVID-19, heightened geopolitical tensions, historically low and negative interest rates, as well as rising inflationary expectations amidst unprecedented levels of stimulus measures launched by central banks around the globe. You know, those are a lot of the, you might say, the typical reasons people might say that gold is going up. And this person has probably taken by far more of an expert. What I like about gold a month ago, two months ago, was that here's this thing that still hadn't gone up. In a sense, the, the market had gone up, the tech stocks had gone up, and even the Dow is starting to catch up now. And what was great about gold and silver and commodities in general is they still hadn't gone up. And they were a, a place, so kind of a solid place to put your money, you know, gold, silver, even copper. Now, one could argue that for energy, but of course, energy, there is, are, you know, it's, why isn't oil going up? But there are different kinds of energy coming in. Now, it's a fair debate that Jeffrey Christian brought up a couple of weeks ago on how significant those other energy sources are, and he's skeptical. Anyways, this is a financially driven rally, right? This, it's not because uh, physical demand is growing. It's because the investment demand, there is a sense that gold is undervalued. Now, Cameron Alexander continues, having said that, gold remains vulnerable to liquidation in the short term as a move closer to its previous record high level or beyond that may well trigger a wave of profit taking. And then you get the forecast, refinitive. These forecasts, I again, maybe I'm the one who's out to lunch here. Refinitive, a provider of financial market data intelligence, forecasts gold will average $1,715 per ounce this year. Now, to be fair, this report is probably a week or two old. So he was talking about Q2, and so I'm not sure how old this report is. So Nevertheless, we keep seeing these under, these really low average uh, prices for gold and silver from the investment banks and from the analysts. Anyway, so just wanted to, that was a head turner for me. Another big story that we are following, Northern Dynasty's Pebble Project approved after 15-year fight, and the environmentalists are not happy. If you recall, uh, this is proposed pebble, copper, gold, molybdenum mine in Alaska, and it's thought to threaten one of the world's most important wild salmon fisheries. It's been a brutal battle in the last 20 years. You can follow it on the Northern Miner website. If you just put in Pebble Project or Northern Dynasty into the search and Frankly, it looks like it's being fast-tracked by the Trump administration in what could potentially be the final months of the Trump administration, but that's purely speculation. But it, it really does get that sense, like this thing's moving fast after not moving anywhere for years. Uh, the U.S. Army Corps of Engineers has issued a final environmental impact statement backing the controversial mine in the salmon-rich Bristol Bay. 
The decision opens the door for Northern Dynasty to obtain the federal go-ahead as soon as late August. And this is a quote from Ron Thiessen, Northern Dynasty's president and CEO. There is more work to be done, but the publication of the final EIS today is a clear validation that Pebble can be developed in an environmentally sound and socially responsible way, creating benefits and opportunities for the people of Bristle Bay and all Alaskans. He noted that the final EIS describes the proposed open pit mine and related infrastructure as an operation that will protect water quality, fisheries, wildlife, and other valued natural resources. Based on that, the U.S. Army Corps of Engineers believe the mine can secure all necessary federal and state permits in the future. However, opponents think otherwise. And we have a quote from Colin O'Mara, president and CEO of the National Wildlife Federation. And Colin says... The science is overwhelmingly clear. The proposed pebble mine is a catastrophe waiting to happen. It's simply unconscionable to fast-track such a high-risk project with a shoddy environment review that failed to evaluate the consequences should the proposed six-story dam fail and release 10 billion gallons of toxic waste into Bristle Bay's treasured, pristine ecosystem. Bonnie Gestring... Northwest Program Director for Environmental Group Earthworks was also highly critical. And here's a quote. We are not talking about minor impacts, but the wholesale destruction of over 100 miles of rivers and streams. No other mine in North America, and perhaps the world, would have such a devastating effect on clean water. And finally, we have a quote from Tom Collier, who is Chief Executive Officer of the Pebble Partnership project developer, and he said the publication of the final EIS was the most significant milestone in the project's history. And, quote, today was really 15 years in the making. We have a project that can be done responsibly without harm to the Bristle Bay fishery and provide meaningful contributions to the communities closest to the project. So two different stories that are completely opposite. Where the truth lies... Who knows? The fast-tracking it is what I think really has to concern people. And so there does, from my perspective, seem to be a bit of a political push for this. Environment be damned is my subjective assessment on this. Who knows? We have another story which kind of adds to this whole political push thesis U.S. government approves Ambler Access Road in Alaska. It's by Mining.com staff. The U.S. Bureau of Land Management has approved the development of the northern route to provide access to the Ambler Mining District in northwest Alaska. According to South 32 and Trilogy Metals, partners in Ambler Metals, the record of decision approves the development of the northern, or A, route, which is to be a 211-mile-long gravel private access road in the southern Brooks Range foothills to provide industrial access to the Ambler Mining District. Ambler Metals is a joint venture between So32 and Trilogy Metals, focused on the polymetallic volcanogenic massive sulfide style deposits of the Ambler District. So32 contributed $145 million to the joint venture and Trilogy all the assets, the two most advanced being the Arctic and Bornite projects. And we have a quote from Trilogy Metals in a press release. The development of the road will unlock the world-class economic potential of the region by allowing greater access to the district. So another 
move in Alaska. Another U.S.-centric story, the Pentagon has contracted rare earth miner Linus to design a rare earths facility in Texas by Northern Miner staff. Linus has signed a contract with the U.S. Department of Defense to start design for a heavy rare earth element separation facility in Texas. The facility would process heavy rare earths from the company's Mount Weld mine in Western Australia. In April, the Pentagon awarded Linus and privately held MP Materials funding for rare earth separation facilities in Texas and California. The funds will allow Linus and U.S. partner Blue Line to complete a detailed market and strategy study, as well as detailed planning and design work for the construction of a heavy rare earth separation facility. And management said it expects the work to be completed in the 2021 financial year. And we have a little quote here from Amanda Lacaze, Linus's chief executive officer. Quote, heavy rare earths are essential for the high-performance magnets used in electric motors, and Linus has the feedstock, intellectual property, and track record to deliver a heavy rare earths facility in a timeless and low-risk manner. Lots going on in around the world here. Another great story. This is by Tom Azapardi, who always writes these great... He's a contributor to Northern Miner, and he writes great stories, and he's saying Chile's Maricunga gold belt is set to revive the country's gold industry. Just want to touch on this article because uh, we're running short on time and there's one more I want to hit. A wave of new mines in the pipeline on Chile's Maricunga gold belt are advancing towards construction just as the price of the precious metal hits its highest level in almost a decade. So gold fields, Kinross Gold, Rio 2 Mining, and Kingsgate Consolidated of Australia are all pushing projects that could enter production by the middle of the decade. Together, they promise to revive one of South America's top mining districts and reverse the sharp decline in Chile's gold industry over the last decade. Now, of course, Chile's famous for their copper industry. The Maracunga, however, is a tough place to work. Largely located 3,000 meters above sea level or higher and snowbound in the winter, miners in the area also face scarce water sources and a delicate ecology. Kinross was forced to close its Maracunga mine in 2016, after a court ruled that its water wells had harmed an internationally recognized wetland. In 2018, Kinross lost an appeal before Chile's Supreme Court over the issue. With the closure of Kinross Gold, La Coipa, and Maricunga Mines in 2013 and 2016, gold production tumbled from more than 1.8 million ounces in 2013 to 1.3 million ounces last year, with copper mines now accounting for the bulk of gold production rather than primary gold mines. Over the same period, copper output has remained steady, at 5.7 million tons. So you can read about all the different projects that are in the works. It's a great article, and I just wanted to touch on it to point your attention to it, as it's well worth the read, and it's it's a very interesting report on what's going on in with Chile's gold industry. And finally, before we go into metal prices, I thought we could take a look at Tesla, who is pitching a giant contract to nickel miners. It's by Cecilia Jamazmi from Mining.com. Tesla boss Elon Musk is asking miners to produce more nickel, a key ingredient in the batteries that power his company's electric cars, and has offered a, quote, giant contract for a long period of time, end quote, to any firm able to extract it in an efficient, environmentally sustainable manner. Musk noted on a second quarter earnings call that the high price of batteries continues to be one of the main hurdles for Tesla's expansion. Quote, the real limitation on Tesla growth is cell production at affordable price. 
That's the real limit, he said, adding the company would expand its business with battery partners, Japan's Panasonic Corp and China's CATL, and quote, possibly with others. So that is what is going on with Tesla. You can read the whole story on northernmire.com. It's also on mining.com. Tesla is making a pitch for a giant contract to nickel miners. Let's take a look at metal prices now and see what's going on over there. What is the price of nickel? We'd like to thank our friends at Infomine.com who provide us with these prices each and every week. And on July 28th, gold is trading at $1,928.83 per ounce. That is $89 higher than last week's quote. And silver is trading at $23.56 per ounce. That is $2.53 higher than last week's quote. Platinum is trading at $929.92 per ounce. That is $54 higher than last week's quote. And palladium is trading at $2,294.07. It actually peaked above $2,300 earlier this morning. It's at $2,294.07 per ounce. That is $149 higher than last week's quote. And turning to industrial metals, on July 24th, copper is trading at $2.91. That is $0.02 lower than last week. Aluminum is trading at $0.75 per pound. It continues to climb higher. It is... Two cents higher than last week's quote. Lead is at 82 cents per pound. That is two cents lower than last week. Nickel is seven cents higher at $6.09 per pound. And tin has cracked above $8 at $8.03. That is 14 cents higher than last week's quote. Cobalt is unchanged at $12.93. And zinc is up a penny at $1 per pound. So looking at our metals, I would say our precious metals are all up strongly. And industrial metals are basically consolidating pretty big gains. And nickel is a bit of a standout there, continuing a pretty dramatic climb now at $6.09. So maybe that's why Elon Musk was pointing it out in their earnings call. Tin as well, $8.03. That is the highest quote we've had in the last year since we've been recording tin. So with that, those are your metal prices. And coming up, we have the second part of my interview with Gord Stothart, President and Chief Executive Officer of IM Gold. And he was interviewed on June 16th at the Canadian Mining Symposium, which the Northern Miner held on Zoom, and it was a great event. There may be more coming up here. Uh, So, And just so you know, there is a little bit of internet hiccuping on Gord's side about halfway through the interview. It lasts about five, seven minutes. Don't let it throw you off. I edit it quite carefully 
to minimize it, but there may be the odd word that falls out. It all passes. So with that, we are taking things up where I asked Gord about the big turnaround story at the Rosebell Mine and how that's going. Well, it was a big turnaround story. It was a high-cost mine, and it got turned into a low-cost mine. Um, has that stayed on track, or what's the latest there? Well, we had a, you know we had some challenges last year. We, we did have a like a security incident, some illegal miners getting into our into one of our pits, and 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 to protect our workforce, we we were shut down for a little while and brought it back. And that certainly impacted our our cost of production last year. But since then, it, I guess it was not only the turnaround of the existing operation, but at the time, a couple of years ago, we had already identified a satellite deposit by the name of Saramaca that was very much of interest to us. We got Saramaca in our hands in the second half of 2016. It had a few drill holes on it. It had an identified ore body, but it had no reserves or resources or anything of that nature. And between 2016 and 2019, we were able to drill out the deposit, identify, you know, about 1.6, 1.8 million ounces of much higher grade material than, than we had at Rosabelle. That's a lot. Yeah, yeah. For us, it, it's certainly significant. And, and for Rosabelle, it's very, very significant. And we've been able to uh, build an operation there. We pushed through a, a haul road uh, that was finally connected here. Uh, in March, and we've started hauling since March uh, from Saramaca. And Saramaca, certainly in the medium and, and longer term, uh, really adds to the rejuvenation of Rosabelle and really will help us uh, drive up our production rate there and drive our cost move forward over the next number of years. Okay, excellent. And you have, you're talking about the Westwood mine in Canada, mm -hmm. and you also have the Cote Gold, Cote Gold. Yep. Uh, and you just picked up something from Monarch Gold, the Fayol project. And so tell us about Canada. Is, is that your favorite place to work or do you have a favorite place to work? I mean, it is the Canadian Mining Symposium, Gord. So. <laughs> I, you know, we certainly like working in Canada. Obviously, uh, being a Canadian, I, I do like being here. But I, but I like all of our operations in all of the countries where we're, each one of them has got some things going on for them and some great people. I think for us, we work in these three regions. As a company, uh, between ourselves, as I am Gold and, and the predecessor, we've been in all of these jurisdictions for plus years. So as we look at our strategy going forward, we really are looking for a balance in our jurisdictional uh, coverage. It provides us with a bit of a, a, a portfolio effect, if you will. There are uh, certainly some of our peer companies are, are much in North America. And there's a lot of competition to find the appropriate assets. You do pay for that, you know, given our history and our geologic corporate knowledge, if you will, in a lot of these other jurisdictions, we do see some real technical advantages in, in understanding what those domains look like and, and in dealing with the government. So we are comfortable in these other domains, but because uh, of our efforts in, in, in Canada and North America certainly provides some balance on, to our portfolio. We've got Westwood uh, outside of Rouen Randa, a smaller underground mine. Uh, last year produced about 92,000 ounces. It's headed towards 
sort of in the range of 105 to 100,000 ounces over the next couple of years. And it's got a nice long, we didn't announce file, but Monarch announced file a couple of weeks ago that we had picked it up from them. It's a small open pit operation. It's about 30 kilometers from Westwood as the crow flies. And as, as we look at our production profile, Westwood, uh, we do have a capacity opportunity at the mill there. Uh, mm -hmm. So picking up file really is something that within the two years, uh, we feel we can start feeding that material in, into the, the Westwood mill uh, during the ramp up period and, and help us ramp up a little bit quicker. You know, we're currently, we have a small open pit deposit that's on the property that we're feeding this year called Grand Duke and file would fit in behind it. And then beyond that, you know, with Westwood at the 135, 145, uh, we have made some announcements around a nice project we call the Ruan project, which is an option we've we've picked up from a from a junior called Butches in uh, Ruan Naranda in the southern part of Ruan Naranda. It's it's an old operation. It's brownfield site. There are some underground workings on the site. And it provides us an opportunity to maybe supply 30 to 50 thousand ounces annually for a 10 year period uh, once uh, once it gets permitted and developed and so forth. Okay, great. And we have a question here too uh, from Yassine Belkabir. And just before we move on, he's talking about, uh, he says, although Essicane generated strong free cash flow over time, IM Gold has not developed more projects in Africa. Is there an explanation? More particularly, what's delaying the development of Boto Project in Senegal? So back to Africa. No problem. I, I'm happy to talk about Boto. And, and, and Boto is a, it is a good project. It's taken us a while. Uh, to get it to the status, it is an art. We we talk about Cote and Bodo sort of in the in the same vein. They're both shovel-ready projects, ready to move ahead, and we're in the process of of looking at that right now. Uh, we built big expansion on Essican in 2013 uh, into 2014, so we have been building out our, our production in West Africa. Uh, we had a plan for years on an expansion of Sadiola, but we just had a lot of trouble getting that over the line between the relationship with Angle Gold Ashanti. So unfortunately, um, I would have liked to have been talking about that one as, as, a, as a development project. But Bodo, we received a permit from the Senegalese government uh, in December. We're working on some of the infrastructure items, including the Hall Road right now. We're working on detail engineering on that project and pushing it forward. And beyond Bodo, I mean, Bodo, it, it, it's an intriguing, it's an intriguing location. And if, if people want to look at our presentation, which uh, we have a, an interesting map on there that shows Bodo, for better or worse, courses B, uh, put a border right beside Bodo. Uh, it's, it's on a nice north-south trend, uh, goes six kilometers, seven kilometers north of us. In fact, if you stand north end of the Bodo deposit, uh, you can see B2 Gold's Fecula deposit just across the river in Mali. If we go a little further south on the same trend, uh, at around seven or eight kilometers south of Bodo, you cross into Guinea and you have our Kurita deposit. You go a little further south from Kurita, about another four or five kilometers, you have our Diaka deposit in Mali. So back in Mali. Mm -hmm. So it, it's politically, it's, it's interesting. Geologically, it's extremely interesting. Uh, you know, if we look at Bodo, uh, Dayak, uh, uh, and Karita as a package, you know, if we didn't have the situation that was, we'd be talking about a situation where we'd have a target of 8 million ounces uh, on a 14-kilometer trend, which is, 
is an attractive mine anywhere, moderate stripping ratios. So not only have we, we carried Bodo to where it is right now, but we're really looking at what is that possible with a package like that. What's reasonable to be to expect we could put in place uh, in that area with the government partners? So we by no means have abandoned West Africa. You know, I have a one of my senior vice presidents is based in Dakar, uh, and is very tapped into what's going Africa on an ongoing basis. So and we are running close to our limit on time. We have a few more minutes here. I, I want to ask you about tailings dams because from what I could tell from your website, you have tailings dams and they've become a big issue. In, mm-hmm. in recent years with the big disaster in Brazil that happened. And like there's the Church of England and the ESG issues, and they want to launch a database to track tailing stamps. What's your take on tailing stamps? And how do you deal with this issue? Personally, in my career, I've spent a lot of time dealing with tailing stamps just because of the nature of my, my past job. So I, I, we, we looked into it at a high level rate to the Mining Association of Canada's Towards Sustainable Mining Protocol, which was originally actually founded to help uh, organizations manage tailings dams. Uh, we've been at um, an A to AAA level for all of our operations, not just in Canada, but internationally as well, uh, for about five or six years right now. Uh, so I, I do have spend a lot of attention on tailings. Yeah, and you're confident in a- the technology, for instance? Not just internally, but externally, we, we have independent uh, reviews, independent review boards looking at what we're doing. But we recognize uh, not only during the construction and also in the closure that these are, these are legacy structures that really need to be managed. Each one individually, its own engineering ev- uh, event needs to be understood. Uh, you mentioned the Church of England questionnaire. We did respond. We are public around how how we build and why we build and and what we've been able to do so far you know as i look at our structures i'm comfortable with what i'm seeing um, mm-hmm. almost every visit that i go to sites i do spend some time understanding where we're at with the tailings and and as i said we do have these regular independent reviews um, and it receives attention not only from the executive and the technical teams but also from our board of directors that they spend a fair bit of time uh, again, not just because it's in the news, but as you, you work from a risk-based uh, approach to managing your company, everybody wants to know what is our exposure with respect to tailings and are we doing the right things? Yeah, because if that goes wrong, it can just undermine the whole company. I, we have one more question uh, online here, and it looks like a good one. Hi, Gordon, Adrian, Les Anderson. Gord, can you please elaborate on your Indigenous relations and First Nations efforts in your global operations and then more specifically in Canada for the I Am Gold Cote project. Thank you both. Okay. So certainly at our overseas operations, uh, we, we don't call it First Nations in, in Suriname or, or in, in Burkina Faso, but it has a lot of similar elements. We, uh, within the company for the past dozen years, uh, have had a program or a vision we call Zero Harm. I know other companies talk about a zero harm vision. We actually do own the, the uh, copyright on that term. <laughs> uh, and we're happy to share it because we think it's a great vision. Um, so we have strong community relations uh, presence uh, with the immediate local communities in all the areas we operate. Uh, we, we spend a lot of effort on uh, development activities to make sure we can find ways. One, um, the, the communities to set themselves up to survive past the end of the mine. And, and that's really important for us. 
while we do spend a lot of effort on local purchasing and make sure that the mine is currently contributing, we look for ways uh, to set up programs so so the economies are are, are self-sustaining well beyond the, the the life of the mine. Um, mm-hmm. You know, at, at Essican, for instance, uh, about uh, two two years ago now, we commissioned a a, a solar plant. Uh, we run Essican on a on a on a hybrid solar thermal plant, uh, and that solar plant is going to. Um, we will own it at the end of the mine life. Uh, we don't own it now. We had a third party build it, but we will amortize the cost of it over the life of the operation. And when we leave, there'll be a, a 15 megawatt solar plant in the region to supply power to local communities long after the mine is gone. You know, circling back to uh, to Canada. We have an ongoing dialogue at our, our Westwood operation with the Pigogan uh, First Nation that's in and around Westwood. It's a regular conversation. You mentioned Fiol earlier, so that's certainly entering into the conversation as well and making sure that we manage it. And I think the model of what we've been able to put in place at Cote uh, with our First Nations partners in that region has is, is been pretty progressive. The First Nations we're dealing with there uh, specifically are, are the Metogamy First Nation and the Flying Post First Nation, whom we've signed um, uh, impacts benefit agreement with uh, last year, uh, ahead of the development of Cote. From day one, we've spent a lot of effort from the day one in, in acquiring this. And, and even the junior that preceded us at Cote had spent a lot of effort uh, with those First Nations groups. Uh, they're within a group that's called the Wabin Tribal Council. We do have some relationship with another First Nations group called uh, Brunswick House, uh, although they're not uh, party to the IBA. Uh, and beyond that, we also have a dialogue with the with the Métis Nations of Ontario. And, and as we look at it, the model is not different from what we've been trying to do uh, at, at our Surinamese or Birkin Abbey sites is find a way that the community has something uh, that provides benefit, not only during the operation, and real benefit, uh, not handout, but let's get some development in place such that, that we can really help these communities uh, get themselves to a better state that they w- than they were in when we showed up. It's got some really progressive leadership at uh, Metogamy and, and, uh, and Flying Post. And it's been our pleasure to be to be able to work with them. And we're really looking forward to when we can announce the construction moving ahead there uh, mm-hmm. at some point and, and really, you know, drive that operation forward together with, uh, with those First Nations. Okay, excellent. Well, I think we're out of time, Gord. Thank you for joining me. I thought it was a lot of fun and it was very well. interesting to hear what you guys are up to all around the world there. So I guess uh, we pass it over to Anthony. Thanks again, Gord. Thank you uh, very much. Thank you, Gord. Thank you, Adrian. And thank you, dear listener, for once again listening to the Northern Miner Podcast. It's very dramatic to follow a gold bull market. It's not a common event. So... Share it with your friends. Leave us a review in the Apple Podcast Library. Otherwise, you just get some popcorn ready, sit back and relax and enjoy the show. So until next week, take care.